When I was little, I was about ten and a half, my mom and my stepdad had been married for a few years, and my mom became pregnant. Well, my stepdad is bald, but I know that the blonde gene is in his side of the family, but he has the most intense hazel eyes ever, just like mine. So around that time, my mom told me I was going to be a big sister. She gave me a book that was called The Big Book of Fairies, and something I read in there was a story about how the fae, or the fairy folk, will swap out their young for human children, and thus they're called changelings. Well, <laughs> when my sister was born, she had the brightest, blondest hair and the most intense blue eyes I've ever seen on a kid. Now, as she's gotten older, they've kind of toned down in color. She's even starting to show a little bit of brown in her hair, something that I will sometimes do when she's annoying me is call her changeling. But for a while, I thought my sister was a changeling. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother. This they start telling you stories of the old. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. I want to welcome all of our fantastic listeners back. Oh my gosh, I love what you've done with your hair. I, you look different today. Oh, <gasps> you can see them too. You can uh, come over to the dark side. <laughs> Oh, no. I wasn't trying to <laughs> encourage your delusions. But my delusions are so much fun. Everyone loves them. No, but really, you are looking mighty fetching this afternoon, morning, night, whatever you're listening. I'm here. Don't put your makeup on in the car. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. You're going to poke yourself in the eye with your mascara and then go over into the next lane, take out a clown car, have 17 deaths on your record. It's not worth it. I'm sure none will be taken out, too. At least one none. But we do want to thank all of you for coming back. We've had a bunch of ratings and reviews on iTunes, and we really appreciate it. Yeah, we want to thank Inorganic Romantic, which I applaud your use of like internal rhyme there. And Tony the Mechanic, uh, I admire your use of tools. And Yeser Kaif Torsu. I'm sorry. I'm sure I messed that up. And Pugs won. That one I got right. For sure. Pu this pugs for you. And we do want to encourage you to reach out to us by leaving ratings and reviews. Uh, as you hear on every podcast, it helps more people find our show. Also, we want to encourage you to reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, all at Just a Story Pod. And through there, you can talk to us and you can also... Check out some of the cool images and information we post about the week's topic. And also another way to find out more information about the topics is on our website. Yes, we have a wonderful, wonderful website on the World Wide Web. That's what WW stands for. It is justastorypod.com. And that's where we keep all of the illustrations I do for each episode and all of our sources where we found all the information that we mishmash together and throw out like some great big salad in your ears tasty healthy salad no it's not it's not it's not there's bacon in it 
And blue cheese. Yeah. Unless you don't like blue cheese, then it's not there. Build Your Fantasy Salad, a new podcast from Jake and Sam. Also on our website, you'll find links to our merch store. And on there, you can get t-shirts and all sorts of fun things with designs by Samantha. Me again. God, I'm annoying. And you can also find links to our Patreon page. Patreon allows you to become a sustaining member, just like NPR makes you do every year during a pledge drive. We don't make you do that. But if you want to do that, you can do that by going to Patreon and subscribing. We have a variety of different monthly levels that you can choose from. Each one comes with its own quirky little reward. Right, such as stickers, our chance for digital meetups, our chances to come on the show. Or even you can subscribe at a level to get our mini podcast, Just the Stories, which we publish monthly. And that is a wild rope through history according to primary source material printed at the time that the story first appeared. Yes, it's the fodder for legends. And we will have our fifth episode up this month. We're also going to start working with those patrons who are subscribing at the All the Freuds level. And the All the Freuds level allows you to choose a topic and collaborate with us on an episode and actually come on the show. And another great way to reach out to us is Urban Legend Hotline. And that number, in case you missed it, is 512-222-3375. And you can call us there and leave us a voicemail telling us all about your mother, Zimezu, or, you know, an urban legend if you feel like it. And we might use it as an opening on the show and a springboard for a whole episode. Speaking of. Speaking of. Back to the story at hand. Which came in on the Urban Legend Hotline. And she, our listener describes the idea that her sister was replaced. Something just not quite right about her. Interesting. Like a pot person? Not exactly. I mean, I always thought there wasn't something quite right about my sister, but that's a different story. That is a different episode. <laughs> so within folklore... There are several ideas of children being replaced or taken away. And one of the most well-known and well-codified ideas is that of a changeling. A ch-ch-ch-changeling? Not David Bowie. Oh my God. But David Bowie was totally writing about changelings in that song. Whatever you say. I can prove it. Okay. So I turned myself to face me, but I've never caught a glimpse. Of how others must see the faker. I'm too fast to take the test. And then he goes on to say, And these children that you spit on as they try to change their worlds are immune to your consultations. They're quite aware of what they're going through. I think you're just making up a story. Doesn't that all fit? Whatever you say, boss. It totally fits! I'll prove it as the episode continues. But the real question is, if the idea of changelings is just a story... So, changelings is a very old idea in especially England and Celtic culture. So, all throughout the UK, then? The similar ideas are found throughout Europe. Germany, I would imagine, was big on believing their babies were replaced. Of course. It's like a very German idea. Maybe Sweden a little. Not that they get worked up about it. But a changeling is a substitute for an infant child. And it can be an adult. We're going to focus on the children today. Because that is what most of the time the cases are. And this substitute is a replacement for their real baby. 
And the real baby has been abducted by fairies or elves. Fairies or elves. I was going to say by kidnappers, but no, by fairies or elves. Kidnapping fairies or elves. They are kidnappers. Okay. Maybe the fairy took your baby. Was it like Indiana Jones, you know, where he grabs the statue and he puts the sand on to keep the booby traps from going off? Is it that kind of switch? Do you have booby traps around your baby? Yeah. I don't want the fairies to get it. Sometimes. Sometimes it can be a bag of sand? Kind of. Okay. So, well, it can be replaced with many various things. Sometimes it's a starving imp, an aged useless member of the elven tribe. And so this, this is, is their version of like going off to a fine retirement home. No, exactly. So they can be coddled and live their dying days in the warm embrace of a human mother. Pretty good plan. I think that may be where Medicaid's, Medicare's heading. Or it could be the offspring of some other mythical creature, whether that be elves or fairies or trolls. So or... they just give you the troll baby. Yes. And, and take yours. Yeah. Sometimes, well, sometimes they think that a fairy infant needs to grow up on the milk of a human mother. Well, that's just bad evolution. Right? And... Sometimes it could be replaced with an animated piece of wood, like enchanted. Pinocchio? Sure. Okay. (laughs) But this one doesn't move. Um, So it might move a little, but it's pretty much a stock. And it would soon appear to grow sick and die. So it's like Log from Ren and Stimpy? That's exactly what I thought. (laughs) Oh, God. So what is the motive for our fairy kidnappers? Well, there are lots of different choices. Okay. <laughs> Depending on who you're talking to, where you are in the world. So sometimes they would think that the child could be taken to act as a servant in the land of fairy. So the humans would be a servant to the fairies. Exactly. Okay. Or sometimes the fairy could just fall in love with the child and want to take it. Oh my God, that kid's so cute. I think I'll just have it. Just have it. Thank you. Or of course... Malicious intent. Just to mess with the parents, I'm guessing? Yes. That's a mean fairy. Yeah, maybe to right some wrong done to their kind. You stepped on a toadstool, now you have a stock. So in Scottish folklore, the fairy queen, like mob, Mm -hmm. etc., is said to pay a tithe to hell every seven years. So that's an unseelie fairy. Yes. And so this tithe to hell would be some sort of mortal human, whether that be her lover's as described in the epic Tamlin. I guess you can call it epic. I think it's epic. Saying, at the end of seven years, she pays a tithe to hell. I so fair and full of flesh, I fear it be myself. Hmm. But also this could be taken children that are given a sacrifice to hell. It's very minotaur, yeah? A little bit. Uh, Another motive, I love this idea, is that they would abduct boys so that they could be the champion of mortal strength, but fairy indoctrination that would one day emerge to lead the forces of Elfland against humans. That's kind of badass. Let's write that book. It I'm already exists. doing it, it in probably my brain exists. right now. But it's kind of Peter Pan when you think about it, like a boy who's taken away to kind of a magical land. and. So J.M. Barry actually wrote a story about changelings. Well... This does not surprise me. As did all Victorian authors. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's really, it's got some beautiful Victorian themes. So some people claimed that fairies needed this mortal strength because the Sade were shadows and spirits 
who could not move objects themselves. So they lacked like corporeal being. Exactly. So they needed the muscle. Yeah. They were fairy muscle, like fairy bouncers, or like Luca Brasi in The Godfather. Sure. Knowing this, knowing that they're coming to take my baby away so he can be fairy Luca Brasi, I want to not have that happen. I would prefer to keep him with me so he can grow up and join a proper Italian crime family. So how to do that? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Like, are there instructions? You take take the cannoli. cannoli. Yeah. Okay. No. (laughs) It seems like a fairy thing to do, right? They come, maybe they leave a gun and they take your cannoli. It's like an Italian mafia Santa fairy. (laughs) (laughs) So there are different things you could do to prevent changelings from coming around. You could do simple things like having an inverted coat in the room. It would just confuse the fairies. Oh, that's confusion is a very powerful tool. There's also a tradition, especially in Scandinavia, that supernatural beings are afraid of iron. So you could leave an open pair of iron scissors or a knife where the baby is sleeping to prevent them from coming. Oh, well, that seems safe and reasonable. And, you know, I would feel much safer with an open pair of scissors near my baby. Yeah, I don't think that's recommended by most pediatricians. Can you check? Maybe fairy doctors. So in some places, such as in Cornwall, there's a place called Manantol, which are these stones, these three, like, Neolithic stones. I think Stonehenge, but smaller. And supposedly they have a fairy guardian. The stones have their own fairy guardian. Right. And in one reported case, a changeling baby was put through one of the stones. So it has like a donut hole in the middle? Yeah, it's kind of wheel donut shaped. And by putting it through the stone, they were able to go from their changeling back to their real baby. So you just pass that camel through the eye of a needle and then you're done. You got it. Okay. So in Ireland, looking at a baby with envy, also known as overlooking the baby, was dangerous. It endangered the baby, and then fairies could have power over it. You could also give fairies power over people by admiring or envying a woman or man unless the person added a blessing onto it. Women were especially in danger in hashtag liminal states. So like being a new bride or... Being pregnant. Or a new mother. One great way to prevent babies from being stolen away is by doing an early naming and baptism. Oh, they don't take the baptized babies? It's protective. Okay, so was there any particular way to like diagnose a changeling? Like what were some of the the signs, the symptoms? Do they have a look to them? Well, kind of. There are lots of different descriptions and they do change. They change with where they are, again with who you're asking. But there are some ideas that are very central and repeated. And so a child will have an old distorted face, large head, squeaky voices are very fussy. They use small or wizened body and dark or sallow skin. They often would not have like full powers of speech or have very limited speech. And they were described as having a lack of heart or soul, strange, malicious, or ungovernable spirit. That's just nasty. That's just a nasty thing to say about a child. I feel like you'd say that about any child, or at least ours. Speaking of ours, a golden-haired child was in far more danger of being stolen than a dark-haired one. Oh, good. Sir John Rice, who's a very prominent Celtist at the time, stated, when fairies steal nice blonde babies, they usually place in their steed their old-age-looking brats, 
with short legs, sallow skin, and squeaky voices. So they stole the nice blonde babies and left, like, lemon babies? I guess that's one way you could put it. Boys were more likely to be taken. Yeah, Remy's gone. Our our son would have been gone in five seconds. Yeah. He's blonde-headed. And an ungovernable spirit. Yes. And our daughter is very dark-headed. So she's okay. We'll keep her. Boys are more likely to be taken than girls. Oh, for the fairy muscle. Of course. And they're often described as very gluttonous, always hungry. And as our old friend Martin Luther would say, they'll suck a mother dry. Had a way with words, didn't he? Oh, he did. Um, Another tradition, especially in Scotland, was that if one was born with a call or like a membrane over the head, then they were of fey birth. And that actually plays out even today. There are many, many people in various regions of the United States to this day who believe a child born with a call will be second sighted. Yes, yes. We ran across that with uh, a D.D. Hume on our dime episode. There was a mention of him having a call or some tradition of call in the family. Very hard to pin down. Or they could come back as like that stock. We were talking about this kind of almost lifeless Mm -hmm. baby. That would soon just get more sick and die. I mean, it's easy to see how this would take hold at a time when the infant mortality rate was 97%. I think it was that high. No, it was. I just looked it up. Oh, good. I Googled it Thanks in my for brain. The stats. You know, 40% of stats are made up, right? It sounds right. A fact checked you. It's 43%. Oh, sorry. So in early days, you know, several hundred years ago, you could see changelings exhibited in street fairs. Are in taverns, along with other, quote, freaks. So were these babies that they're putting up, or are these, like, full-grown... They're like kids. Ugh. Child labor laws needed to happen earlier. And, of course, Martin Luther described them as devil's spawn. I've described Remy that way. <laughs> and Odette, actually. <laughs> well, you spawned them. I know. Supposedly. He even had attempts to exercise them. Oh. And at one time, he recommended the child be drowned in the river. He was sort of a dick, huh? Well, he described them as masses of flesh devoid of soul. Damn, these are kids. As time moves on, that description kind of stays around. They're emaciated, beautiful faces, don't speak or cry or sometimes do in certain ways. George Waldron in the 18th century, who's a chronicler of Manx folklore, like great about Isle of Man mm-hmm. kind of folklore... Describe the changeling he had seen, an emaciated five or six-year-old with a beautiful face, but the child could not stand or move. He said, he never spoke nor cried, and was very seldom seen to smile. But if anyone called him a fairy elf, he would frown and stare at the person. He would, like, stick his lip out? Like, I don't know, it's sad. It makes it's, me sad. Oh my god, no, this is all very sad. And he also said that if he was left dirty or unkempt, he would be miraculously cleaned. By fairies. I guess. So the beautiful face is interesting. It is. It's interesting that they're often described as beautiful. And they have other positive attributes attributed to them as well. In the Victorian era, Thomas Crofton Crocker gave an example of an Irish changeling he had met. And something he wrote called the Young Piper. He described it as ugly, emaciated, unable to stand, green, yellow skin, mouthful of teeth, Screaming or whining constantly, except when fed. But, as in the title of Young Piper, he was extremely talented as a musician. Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah, it's kind of like, could it be maybe a sign of his supernatural 
origin. Right. It could be that. I can think of some other things it could be. I have a feeling we'll get to that later. So let's say that I'm suspicious about the baby. The baby has been behaving oddly or looking exquisitely beautiful and being very hungry. And I've decided it's a changeling. Okay. So I want to fix that. I would like to trade this baby for my baby. Is there a protocol? Well, there are lots of things you can try to do. Try. So in the Daily Telegraph on May 19th of 1884, it was reported Ellen Cushion and Anastasia Rourke arrested, charged with cruelty, ill-treating a child three years old. Let's not do this one, but let's still hear about it. Named Philip Dillon. The prisoners were taken before the mayor when evidence was given showing that the neighbors fancied the boy, who had not the use of his limbs, was a changeling left by the fairies in exchange for the original child. While the mother was absent, the prisoners entered the house and placed the lad naked on a hot shovel under the impression this would break the charm. I really think you need parental permission to pan fry a baby. Don't do that. Don't do that. This was a very frequent topic in 19th century newspapers. Changelings? Changeling baby arrest? Yeah. People finding out that their babies were changelings and then trying to do something about it. So yeah. one one story was about Anne Roche and a four-year-old, Michael LaHaye. Now, the child could neither stand, nor walk, nor speak. So the grandmother ordered Anne to bathe him three times in an icy river to get the fairy out of him. Now, they thought that this would persuade the fairies to reclaim their offspring. Because they were making him uncomfortable? Well, they were... Yeah, more than uncomfortable. Okay, so they were torturing him. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And so they were like, oh, the fairies won't like this. This will make them come and trade him back. If I'm mean enough to this baby, they'll come get it. That was the thought. So I guess you could probably guess how this washing uh, washing a baby in the icy river went. Well, it got cold, obviously. Did they, they, did they drop it? Did it go in the water? Well, it was drowned. Oh, no. Let's not do that one either. So in 1845 in Wick, it was reported that there was an ordeal by fire. Okay, I'm going to say no here too. They would place the changeling in a basket filled with wood shavings and ignite it. These are just ways to kill babies. No, it really is. And other, like they have other ones like where you'd place them on hot coals in a chimney and the changeling would jump out of the chimney because of the fire. Pop up through the top? Yeah, like jump out. And then the... Regular baby would come back. That never happened. That never happened once. It's like the suicidal bunny calendar, but terribly depressing. Not even cute. And so another common test was that they would bathe or feed the changeling baby a foxglove solution. That's uh, that's not recommended by the AAP, I would think. That's uh, (laughs) highly frowned upon in most circles of humans. Yeah, foxglove is a very dangerous poison. It has digitalis in it, um, which is now used as a drug digoxin, which is a heart medication that regulates the heartbeat. And so if you have too much, it will stop your heart. This is just a list of ways to kill babies. Well, so there were some other tricks where you would not kill the changeling baby. Okay, let's, let's hear those. So sometimes you would try to trick the changeling into revealing itself by doing something preposterous. Like making porridge or beer in an eggshell. 
That is preposterous. And then, of course, there's the ideas of holy water. You get a priest to come with holy water and try to bless it. Now, there were these guys, <laughs> so there were gals too, called fairy doctors. I have a feeling they shouldn't exist. Okay, tell me all about it. Well, their role was to coax or trick or force the creature to speak. Because once it spoke, then it could say what it wanted and what they needed to do to exchange it back. Sometimes they would leave the babies outside in the woods or on the shore near the waterline. And they would leave them overnight and kind of go off away from it and say incantations. Or sometimes they would leave food for the fairies. I think those might be ways to kill a baby, too. Yeah, more ways to kill a baby. They would flog it. They'd throw, oh, God. They'd throw iron at it. They would expose it on a shovel in a dung heap. They would abandon it in a ditch or a grave. These men are not doctors. <laughs> they would brand it with fire. Or, in the, as in the first account, they would shovel it. So, yeah, we're not doing any of those things. Those people are not doctors. If someone tells you they're a fairy doctor, run. Nothing good can come of it. I like to think of it as like little fairies in white coats. <laughs> well, aren't you the optimist? They're going to put your baby in a dung heap. Put your baby in a dung heap. No, they won't because I won't hang out with fairy doctors. <laughs> okay, so why? Why are people doing this? What on God's green earth could possess a person who is otherwise outwardly rational to expose their baby on a dung heap well there are a lot of ideas you keep saying that (laughs) a lot of possibilities it's an interesting topic and so some victorian euhemerist what is that it's a new word i learned tell me which i can't believe it's the first time i've heard it but it's people that think that all kind of mythology and folklore is based on true history so it's all linked back to something that happened one time somewhere not exactly. So in this case, what they call the kidnap theory. They felt that there was a primitive, dwarfish, English aboriginals that had originally stolen healthy Celtic or Saxon babies and attractive young girls to try to increase their population. And sometimes they might even substitute their sick, malnourished child for the healthy, good Saxon baby. No! False. Calling that not true. (laughs) So they think that this actually took place. This would explain and account for this strange belief that persists today. And you know who was one of the big supporters of this idea? Oh, is it Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? No, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But he was. Uh, Arthur Macon, who we just talked about. Oh, the bowman. Yeah. He liked this idea of these ancient sacrificial rites, and he wrote about it. That one didn't catch on. And then, of course, we have your favorite topic, the Victorian occultist or spiritualist. Okay, so they're going to have to believe that it's something to do with ghosts. Spirits. Spirits. So, hold on, I'm using my, my spidey senses. I'm tapping into my Victorian overlords, and they tell me that it's probably like an astral projection sort of thing, like... Maybe the soul is just separated from the body somewhere, and we can probably just get those right back together if you hire the right medium. I try to just pay them their gold. Is that right? It's kind of. Okay. So they had ideas of possession, possibly, or reincarnation. So they had the soul-wandering theory, which is children whose souls are absent from the body due to a spirit or ghost interference, or the souls of the dead had returned to inhabit 
the bodies of mortal children. So you have a ghost baby, not a fairy baby. Right. S- better? <laughs> Depends on who you ask. It might know all kinds of cool stuff. One must ask, or we must ask, what would Freud have to say about all this? What would he have to say? Well, Freud has an idea of the family romance. And that's where you imagine that your real mom must be a princess locked in a tower somewhere far away who would never make you do dishes. So true. And dad's a superhero astronaut who's just on a different planet right now, but he'll be by any moment to get me. Yeah, that's true. Definitely. And maybe this is the inversion of that. Maybe people are looking at this puny baby going, you can't be my baby. My baby is awesome. My baby was a pretty blonde baby. Yeah, I think that that has a little bit of weight. This idea of a changeling could explain so many problems that were prevalent at this time in European society, such as sudden deaths, disappearances, mysterious illnesses, or even like eccentric and bizarre behavior that babies or children might be having. It's like, oh, well, it's not my baby. It's not my perfect baby. My baby would never do that. My baby is somewhere being fairy muscle. <laughs> Don't be preposterous. Also, it could have, you know, relation to the anxiety over child abductions in the Victorian era. You know, if your child was abducted, there's zero chance of them coming back. So if you have your child kidnapped by human people, you're not getting it back. If you put this in the context of your, maybe the fairy took your baby, you could possibly get the child back. Yeah, there's like a chance. You're saying there's a chance. A sliver of hope. Exactly. So it seems like in the upper class, this idea of child abductions and like mysterious strangers and coming to take your baby was sort of projected on gypsies? Maybe so. The gypsy's going to come and steal your child. Go read the drum in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. Go do it now. Pause, go read it. It's really good. But it was tied to anxieties about differences between race and class. You know, these ideas fit very well with all of the Victorian ideas, you know? No, they really do. I was just thinking about that earlier when you mentioned that Victorians all wrote about it. This is the line between perpetual innocence. It, you know, the child who's taken is preserved as innocent. And any fault that appears can be linked to this malevolent process. So it's seeing beauty as innocence and corruption or degradation as malevolent force from the outside, which is very interesting. Yeah, it's got to come from something else. And it's also got that association of death that the Victorians love to bring into every activity. Tea and death, cake and death, babies and death, brides and death. We do it all. Death and death. Death and death, brilliant. Let's have a seance and talk to dead people, because your company bores me. But the Victorians were all about that sort of dichotomy between innocent purity that could be preserved only through death and fiercely protecting that purity. So true. And it also fit with their ideas of class. You know, they saw this happening in the low people, those Catholics and Celtic people out in the woods. So it became a powerful tool for othering. And by looking at this folksy, whimsical belief that these other people had, the upper class was able to visit the phenomenon like an anthropologist. Like, Yeah, that's why it was always in the paper. It was it's like, look at this. And look at these silly, silly, silly villagers putting their babies in poop. 
<laughs> Don't they know it's just a spirit that's coming, taking their baby? If only they had done a seance with a proper medium. Think of the trouble they could have saved. So while this is a very interesting idea of changelings, and there are lots of ideas of why this exists so strongly for centuries in the European cultures, this is not just a European idea. Oh, no, it's not. And we're going to explore that in Africa. Sorry, I felt like Eddie Murphy for a second. You remember in stand-up? Africa. (laughs) So there's a belief that is predominantly clustered in several different cultural identities throughout Nigeria. So in Southeast, Southwest, and Midwest Nigeria, among the Igbo, Yoruba, and Orobo tribes, there's a very prevalent cultural belief in something called an Agbangji or an Abiku. And also in this area, there's a very prevalent belief in reincarnation. It's not reincarnation that you might think of when you think of like Hinduism or a caste system or anything of that nature, because it lacks a karma concept. Oh, so it's very different. Yes. There's no desire to escape the cycle. Terrestrial life is perceived as being desirable and fun. So this is the best. This is the best you got. Not loving it? <laughs> Not? Mm, okay. All right. I'm on board. All right. Not really. <laughs> so what is the point of reincarnation if you're not trying to ascend to an afterlife? It's very much to attain earthly status. And the younger you are when you die, the quicker you reincarnate because of the more unfinished business you have. Bargains can be made with one's personal deity or chi in order to come back to the life that you desire. Most people believe that souls reincarnate back into the same family that they left from. So do you make that bargain while you're still alive? Yes. Oh. It's a very active process. Okay. One interesting quote from a paper I read said that most people, especially in the Igbo culture, who are dying are more concerned with who they will reincarnate or how they will reincarnate than with the fact that they're dying. It's a very positive forward idea. Right. I can be proactive. I'm not dead yet. But I can be proactive. So people who led worthless, and that's a quote, lives, like never started families, were just kind of bums, etc., are very unlikely to reincarnate. They didn't have anything to offer the first time around. They're not going to keep coming back. Also, accidental deaths and suicides are thought to not reincarnate, or at least infrequently. So they stay in the inferior spirit realm. Yes. That's interesting. I have I don't know the answer to this. It's like I wonder how frequently the spirit realm is the less desired choice. Very infrequently. Yeah, I would guess. Terrestrial life is seldom preferred for obvious reasons. But you know, you have to wonder like I bet they value just the everyday, the life more. I bet they're almost Cajun. <laughs> Interestingly, again, you can keep someone from reincarnating by burying them face down. Vampires. Always with a face-down burial. So, also, interestingly, it takes three to tango in these cultures. You have to have a mother, a father, and a spirit who would like to be born or reborn. You cannot conceive without a willing spirit. Definitely ties it in to the important elements of family life. It does. So, when you have your baby, it's (coughs) not you. You're not having the baby. Don't don't freak out. So when you have your baby, it's very important to determine who the baby's predecessor was or who the deceased person who has been reincarnated as your baby was. And this is for several reasons. It allows 
parents to avoid taboos that that person kept, which could make the baby sick if they were broken, and just gives you a general idea of what to expect of this baby. So how would they do this? They will check for birthmarks. Okay. Um, any kind of scars or birth defects that match the deceased. Like the pigs. Yes, very much like the pigs. You consult an oracle. This oracle's interesting. This oracle will hold a chicken egg in their hand and grasp it firmly. But not too firmly. But not too firmly. And then they will read a list, I say of suspects, of uh, deceased people. And when they get to the right name, the egg shatters magically or by a quick flex. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes the parents are allowed to hold the egg. There's no way they subconsciously decide. Yeah. And this is usually done when the baby is about a month old. In addition to this, they can also show behaviors that were associated with the deceased. One thing they mentioned was like having a stutter or a limp. Or they might have memories of the deceased person's life. Recognizing possessions or familiar places, that sort of thing. But those obviously don't manifest until the child's older and has discernible either behaviors and or memories to draw upon. So how is a reincarnated family member different from an Obanji? I don't know. I will tell you. I'm going to guess that an Obanji is more changeling-like. Yes. That whole discussion of reincarnation would be pointless if that were not true. And I wouldn't do that to you. Well, I would. But not on the show. Ogbanji are rebels or rogues with no connection to the family. Rebel spirit. Absolutely. Sounds like the name of a cheap perfume. Or my new band. Oh, God, I'm not coming to see you. You have to. It's in the marriage contract. (sighs) They are conspirators who have come here only to leave again. And the word Ogbanji translates roughly to to make several trips to and from a place. Or it's more commonly translated now as repeater child. They seem to come from nowhere, and they sort of disrupt the natural reincarnation cycle. So they throw everything off. Mm-hmm. Because they don't have the desire for terrestrial life that's associated with a normal soul. So that's why they don't behave like a normal child. Right. And as I was researching, I came across these two beautiful poems. They're both called Ibiku, but they're by different authors. This one's by John Pepper Clark. I'll just read you a little of it. Coming and going these several seasons, do stay out of the baobab tree follow where you please your kindred spirits no longer than bestride the threshold but step in and stay for good we know the knife scars serrating down your back and front like the beak of a swordfish and both your ears notched as a bondsman to this house are all relics of your first comings then step in step in and stay for her body is tired Tired, her milk is going sour, where many more mouths would gladden the heart. This one's also called a biku, and it's by Wole Soyinka. In vain your bangles cast, charm circles at my feet. I am a biku, calling for the first and repeated time. The ripest fruit was saddest. Where I crept, the warmth was cloying. In silence of webs, a biku moans, shaping mounds from the yolk. And I just thought I would edify you on some fantastic African poetry. We're going to get to why those some of those statements mentioned in the poems are relevant. This is the legend of the Ibiku. In the distant past, children were born, and they used their psychic power to determine that life was too tough. There was too much competition, strife, pain, suffering. So they acknowledged their laziness and their inability to compete. 
So they were like, life sucks. Y'all are crazy <laughs> to think the terrestrial world is the best. Peace out. Exactly. So they decided to die, to go back to heaven where things were easy. But the gatekeeper told them, y'all lazy. You're not allowed in. Go back again and act right. So they were reincarnated. But they decided on their way back to form a spirit society. Now, these are primarily located in forest, and they rendezvous at the base of baobab trees or other equally large, impressive trees. Oh, like that was discussed in the poem. Yes. And no one can see these spirit congregations because they're spirits, so they lack corporeal form. And they spend their time in play activities with other spirits. So if they hated terrestrial life so much, why do they ever come back? Just to have a taste of it? Just a, a sous-song. Just a little amuse-bouche of real life. But they do make packs with other spirits before they return. So they don't stay too long in the world of the living. So they choose the date that they're going to die before they're reincarnated or reborn. Because they're, I guess they're technically not reincarnated. And there are two main types of these undomesticated Ogbongji spirits. The first type will usually die before they're five years old. The second type are those who live a while, but seem to die, quote, capriciously. The ones that die before they're five generally can die, for example, on the day of their birth. These are highly committed to their spirit kin. So they just want a really tiny taste. Mm -hmm. In other instances, they might die on days of importance for their father. The ones that survive to adulthood may die on the day of their wedding. In more recent years, children who die upon or right before high school or university graduation are considered to be part of this group. Often, young adults will pass away while waiting for exam results to come in. And the results usually arrive after their death, and they're invariably good. But whatever day they choose, they choose that day in order to make sure that they are the center of attention by causing as much disruption as possible. So another sign that they're like not nice spirits. Right. They're very very selfish. Egocentric. Yes. There are other signs besides their egocentricism. Incredible physical beauty. Interesting. Like we saw with a changeling. Yeah. They have those beautiful faces usually. Mm -hmm. They have superior intelligence or a wisdom about them. They're characterized by fastidiousness, stubbornness, quick tempers, being disrespectful, little violent and making unreasonable demands on parents and in some accounts i read children would actually like ransom themselves really like give me what i want or i'll die so they'd already been given that title of oh a yeah yes. yeah so they knew they could play it yes our child is no bungee <laughs> yes and a lot of times if parents have had a lot of infants or very young children die in a row and then they deal successfully with the umbangji or the abiku the cycle is broken. They can start having children normally. They don't have a lot more deaths. So how do you break the cycle? Well, testimony and confession are key. Oh, you have to get them to say it. Mm-hmm. Ah, just like the changelings. Yes. It's one of the reasons that the belief has become so prevalent. There are other ways to stop the cycle, such as giving special names for suspected Ubangji or Obikos. So this would be the kid's name. Mm-hmm. There is Kokumo. He will not die again. Malomo, don't die again. Those are both Yorba. Or Amwibiko, death, I implore you, which is Igbo. Or Akpoyomo, the world is good. And that's an Urobo name. If you give your child a special name and they don't cooperate. So they up and die on you. They up and die. 
You may consult a medicine man, which is called a dibia or a babaloa, and they mutilate the body of the dead child in ritualistic ways. It's usually scarification or amputation. The little finger is a favorite for amputation. So is this the scarification they were talking about in the poem? Yes, when he talked about like your ears being notched and the scars running up and down your back like a swordfish beak. That's what he's referring to. So this is so when they come back, the scars will be there and they'll recognize them? Yes. Hmm, clever. And interestingly enough, in every paper I read, it made reference. These were all Nigerian papers or people who'd done extensive field work in Nigeria. They reported that the large numbers of documented cases of babies being born with unexplained scars or amputated pinkies has still not been adequately explained by medical science. There's something there. Like, maybe. What is it? Also, it's not just for identification purposes, though it's handy. It's also to keep his spirit friends from wanting to play with him because he's ugly. So to try to kind of punish him? Well, they think that they'll be an outcast and be like, okay, life on earth wasn't so bad. And come back as a nice spirit? Yes, and not want to, and not be able or not want to go back to their spirit kin. One of the key rituals in dealing with an Ugbangji is to find their stash. Stash of what? Magic shit. Magic stuff. Magic paraphernalia yes, for their stash. That's exactly what it is. So they're said to have hidden some object, and exposing that object severs ties to the spirit world. Among the Ovwi, which is a sub-ethnic group of the Urbo, parents of a living child who is suspected of being a Bangji due to frequent illness or convulsions or other signs may consult a medicine man who begs the child to lead him to their spiritual paraphernalia. And the child may like eventually willingly lead this medicine man out to dig up their buried treasure, which is usually like either behind the house or like at the base of a big tree. Where the spirits like to play. Yes, and it might include cowries, beads, threads, shells, etc., which is one reference with, like, you cast bangles at my feet and things like that that we saw in the poem. And the medicine man can either make a charm out of them, and he might give it to the parents to keep, or actually have the child wear it on the, around their neck or wrist. And sometimes the items that are discovered are ritualistically destroyed in order to sever those ties to the spirit world. There are other methods. One involves a ritualized dance with a piece of pottery with water in it on the head. Not sure about that. Couldn't find a lot of details. <laughs> Want to see it. And then there's soup. Foxglove soup? Maybe. No soup for you. <laughs> yes, soup for you. So a baby will be placed in a clay pot with a an herbal soup mixture filled to the level of their neck. So soup hot tub. <laughs> So, yes, and it is kept hot. It's kept at around 98 degrees is the desired temp. So they're mildly broiling the baby. They're cooking the baby a little. Now, what disturbed me most is the child may be maintained in such a soup for as long as a month in extreme cases. Wow, that's a long time. To be in soup. Do they eat the soup? I don't... I hope not. But... There's a large Christian population in Nigeria now, so we have to talk about how they deal with the Ubangji. So I bet they go that kind of Victorian route, like possession. Right. Actually, when you were reading to me about the Victorian beliefs about changelings, I thought they sounded more like this African tradition than the European counterpart. Like they're wandering spirits who come in contact with the baby and they're either reincarnated or possessed or something. Yeah, they really tie in very well. But the Christian Nigerians do believe that the children are possessed 
So the spirits exist out in the world under baobab trees, and they can possess children. And they're seen as a foreign influence, not as like a natural internalized identity. So it takes it out of that normal family role and makes it an external problem. Yes. And you do try to get rid of it. They usually consult like a, a clergyman. They exercise them. And kind of exercise it a little. The Agbangji are seen as spirits who are contrary to God. And so they don't ask it to stay and plead with it to stay. They try to get it out of the kid. They're trying to separate it from their child. Whereas in more traditional presentations, you have people pleading with the Ibiku. Step over the threshold. Stay with us. Don't go back. Let's cut your ties to the spirit worlds. Just stay here with us. And this way they're trying to kick it out. There are things you can do if you're expecting a baby to keep it from being born an Ibiku or an Ogbongji. Are there scissors? Nope. There are also not washcloths. You are just supposed to kind of sit in your own filth. Stop taking care of yourself. Stop taking care of your environment. And it will become less attractive to these spirits. This has obvious health implications for newborns and crawling babies. But it's still widely culturally accepted. And as I said, mothers do report often having babies that have scar patterns that match those that were ritually applied to the bodies of their deceased previous children so this would mean that the abiku or bongji is back for round two it is so interesting because it could you know you could explain things like uh, perioral pits like little kind of notches near the ears um, which is a very common finding in babies by this but it couldn't explain something like scars down the back like lines down the back or missing your little finger right it's really interesting idea you know sometimes we're just gonna have some unexplained things in the world That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes the story so powerful. And interestingly, this story is still a growing phenomenon. This idea is very well entrenched in Nigerian culture. And since there is more free movement of people around the country and it's easier to get around, it's spread and spread. And it's growing instead of getting smaller. That is very interesting. As the country becomes more modern. It has more medical care. and These ideas are so interesting. And you can look at so many different reasons for these ideas to exist in cultures. Of course, there's just the anxieties about childbirth. Yeah, I get that. The high amount of infant mortality before modern medicine kind of came about. Yeah, and you just fixed everything, didn't you? No, we haven't, unfortunately. <laughs> fixed a few things, though. I think one of the prevailing ideas of why these kind of ideas of changelings and Ubanji exist is something that I like to call, and it's called kind of in my profession, like the wished for child. Mm-hmm. Whenever one has a child that has some sort of medical problem, no matter what the medical problem is, if they aren't that idea of your perfect little bouncing baby, no matter what you may say to the outside world no matter how you kind of express these thoughts still within yourself there is a a mourning period and a grieving period for the the wished for child the perfect child that one expected i mean i think that you and i can identify with that really really easily definitely so when i was pregnant with my daughter when we went in for our second major sonogram they were like it's a girl and they came back like five minutes later and we're like, and also there's some issues. Yeah, and it took us back. You know, I mean, as it would any parent. 
And they then explained that she was going to have club feet, which was fine. And we dealt with that in stride. And we came back for our next sonogram. And they told us there were going to be some more issues. And that we needed to have an amniocentesis then, right then, really, really right then. And that feeling of panic and helplessness that came over me was absolutely overwhelming. I was rude out loud to a nurse who kept being like, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, we just need to. I was like, just don't. (laughs) Which I'm never. Don't coddle me. I'm never that way. I'm generally a pretty well-mannered southern lady but i was just like "Mm -mm, no don't and we didn't share that with our families for a long time because we were so unsure of what the diagnosis was ultimately going to be and what the level of difficulty was going to be for her and what we were we had no idea what to expect i mean we had a list of possible diagnoses as long as my arm with some being catastrophic and some being mild I spent my pregnancy on edge because ultimately, after all the genetic testing and all the sonograms and everything else we had done, everyone's opinion was, we're just going to have to wait for her to be born and see. And without a doubt, we had a grieving period. You know, we had a period where we were scared and anxious and angry and eventually accepted it. Well, I think that we were very, very lucky when I was thinking about people who have these beliefs and changelings and things like that and where they're distributed through time and geography. A lot of these people probably don't have sonograms that warn them that things are going to be wrong. And I felt like I accomplished my grieving. I had gotten to a place of acceptance by the time she was born. And I felt very lucky to have had those few months to kind of get my head around it. And I cannot imagine how devastating it would be to go through nine months and then have a child and be like, they don't have arms or whatever, like, and just not have known at all. Yeah, you'd have to start your grieving process then, when you also have to take care of the baby and you have to build a bond. Mm-hmm. Which seems overwhelming to me. It would be. And I mean, in case anyone is worried, our little girl's absolutely fine. She is tough as nails. She has been through three surgeries. She has done serial casting and PT and she is fast and she can climb stairs and jump and do anything that any other kid can do and it's kind of amazing and we value her every accomplishment so much because we know how lucky we are to have had access to good medical care and access to amazing amazing doctors who were kind and generous. And that one nurse, if you're listening, I'm sorry, I snapped at you that day. But she is just phenomenal. And so if you do think of it from that standpoint, like you said, of of not knowing what's coming, of not even understanding it once it's here. You know, we've always kind of you know choked, like you would have been burned as a witch or something. I totally would have. <laughs> like when she was born, or you would have been buggery with a seal or a horse or something. Yeah. <laughs> because we are morbid. We are. Like and That's why you love us. No, like my mom was like, so what is what is she going to have to do? And I was like, she going to have to get magic shoes. <laughs> and my mom was like, Samantha. But whenever you would have this this guilt and this grieving with the child there, their guilt would be directed towards that child and with guilt and with grieving comes anger anger and and denial yeah 
and, and by, yeah, bargaining. Exactly. <laughs> and with all of that, if you can place it on an external source, some evil entity, some evil being, whether it be the devil or a demon or a fairy or an elf that's come and replaced your perfect baby, your wished for child. The one you deserved. Then you can focus your anger that way. And you can bargain that way. And you can bargain with the fairies. And so in this way, it was socially allowed for you to reject your imperfect child. It's pragmatic. It was a socially sanctioned expression of this anger. I mean, you could even go as far as like infanticide or murder. And at the time, like some of the cases I read earlier, it was considered unintentional. And their charges were dropped to manslaughter. Is this Canada? But people would also blame this lower class, these people that weren't raising their children right, or they had problems, and that's why the fairies would come and take their baby, or they believed in these things. And I found an interesting quote by, by Kipling, and he wrote something called Rewards and Fairies in 1906. Because he, of course he did. And he has this character called Puck. Who's a fairy? Is Puck a fairy? Yeah, he's like kind of a, a hill people. And he defended his people, saying, All that talk of changelings is people's excuse for their own neglect. Never believe them. And another character's like, We don't act this way in the 20th century. And he says, Whip or neglect a child? Huh. Some folks in some fields never alter. But the people of the hill didn't work any changeling tricks. And they might have done some charms or something. He says, But when the babe's mind came to bud out afterwards... It would act differently from other people in its station, and that's no advantage to man or maid. And so most people feel that the idea of changelings is related to these undiagnosed medical medical conditions that arose at this time that now we would know what they are and know how to treat them. It just makes it so tragic. It's such a silly belief on its face where it's like, oh, you didn't get the perfect baby you wanted, and so you think the fairies stole your baby? You're an idiot. Like, it's... It's such a surface read. Yeah. And then when you go a little bit deeper, it becomes this very human tragedy. Like, it's just, it's sad for the moms who don't know how to care for their child and don't have access to people who do. And it's sad for the child who did absolutely nothing wrong, but is now sitting in a dung heap. On a shovel. A lot of people cite that there's no really defined standard appearance in the mythology. It kind of changes. Changes. As stories do. To fit the situation. You know, sometimes these active monstrous beings, sometimes they're beautiful, sometimes they're really hairy. Sometimes they're... Oh, I didn't hear the hairy one. Oh, yeah. Sometimes they're these wizened, old-looking people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're stocks. They're immobile. They might as well be a piece of wood. And at the time, even, in 1854, Sir William Wilde... Wilde? Wilde, you say? Is yes. he kin to my favorite Wilde? He is the, a surgeon and folklorist and father of Oscar Wilde. He's going in my club. My club of people I like. He felt that these kids fit in with, like, wasting disease, which they call it the time, which could be a lot of things, but kind of related to infections you would get while in utero or during the birthing process. Something like rubella Mm -hmm. or 
toxic plasmosis, or all these other things, some things we have immunizations for. But he attacked the idea, saying the many superstitious notions entertained by the peasantry respecting their supposed fairy-stricken children, as well as the cruel endeavors to cure children and young persons of such maladies generally attempted by quacks, and those termed fairy men and fairy women. And other people at the time thought similar ideas. Sir Walter Scott felt it could be related to consumption, and lots of people blamed on like smallpox, and they were right, most likely. These were related to other infections. So, you know, they talk about these babies that look fine and then suddenly start to kind of waste away. And that very much fits with things like those perinatal infections, like mm-hmm. I was talking about. Syphilis is in that group. Oh, lovely. But there are some specific illnesses that we see now and some that we don't that definitely fit in with some of these diagnoses. What do you mean we don't see them? So one is called cretinism. That sounds like a really pejorative term. You know, I always felt like it did until I started reading on the origins of it. So cretinism is seen in kids that are born with an underactive thyroid. And that's something we screen for at birth. And it is treated immediately, and that's so we don't see it anymore. Okay, just like we don't see kids infected with rubella anymore. Both, yeah, got a few years on that at least. So cretins, as they were called, are born without any physical problems, and over time, developmental delays, physical deformities, short stature, delayed puberty, thick, discolored skin, loss of hair. But their name, that name Cretan, it sounds so terrible. Yeah, it does. But actually possibly derives from the word Cretan, meaning Christian. And it's a reference to the belief. <laughs> Christians yeah. are thick-skinned and short in stature? Okay. Must have been describing the French. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a reference to the belief that they were God's children. And in parts of Switzerland, it was believed that they actually brought luck to the community. They were scapegoats. They would draw God's wrath upon themselves. It's like putting up a lightning rod in your village. It's like a God lightning rod. God wrath lightning rod. It's like, oh, we can all be kind of dicks because that guy over there, he's really a dick. God really must have hated him for this to happen. Yeah. Okay. Golly, people. And of course, you can think of ideas like hydrocephalus, where they have large heads. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have things, things like cerebral palsy, which are injuries that you can have during the birthing process where you'd have damage to the brain and can cause paralysis, not to be able to use limbs, mm-hmm. or can cause you know, spastic movements. And sometimes they were described as seeing wild dances. Oh. There's things like Down syndrome mm-hmm. could be explained this way. Uh, Williams syndrome. Oh, that's like we talked about on the feral children episode. And those are the, the elf people. Right. They, are literally described as looking like elves. And I actually thought of Williams when you mentioned the kid who was a piper, because usually kids might have a difficulty with simple mental processes, but they're very good storytellers, and they're also incredibly gifted musicians. Yeah, so he definitely could have. And syndromes such as Hunter's and Hurler syndrome cause kids to have gargoyle-like faces give dwarfism, cause darkening of the skin, and dark hair growth over the body. I thought it was interesting when you talked about the darker skin, uh, when you were describing, like, the common appearance, because I couldn't think of anything. Well, you could even think of, like, kids with problems that would have, like, jaundice, you know, yellow baby. Mm -hmm. 
And so kids that weren't digesting food right, and they were having problems processing, having liver problems, would be very yellow and sallow looking. And of course, a frequently cited idea is is autism. So these kids could have just potentially been perfectly fine kids somewhere on the autism spectrum that were being treated this way. Definitely. And just to, to kind of make the point, you know, one woman said, the girl I gave birth to has been stolen. She's gone. And that's from 2001 in an anti-vaccination book. So she believes that her daughter caught autism from vaccines and was therefore stolen. Exactly. So just the the external cause of these problems is just being pointed somewhere else. It's no longer an elf or a fairy. It's science. Maybe the vaccine stole your baby. And so also, with autism, you can have savants. So the musical thing would fit in here, too. Exactly. And sometimes they're described as, as telling poems, or they would just repeat things people said. And so like in autism, they can have rhyming behavior, or echolalia. And that would fit with Williams as well, the storytelling and poems and that kind of thing, because they're brilliant storytellers. Right. Or even like stereotypical movements, you know, like different self-stem kind of motions. So that would be like tapping all of your fingers against your thumb or kind of rocking, rocking. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But one interesting disease that definitely fits in is something called PKU. And so that is related to not being able to metabolize a certain amino acid. And these children are always, and this is related to their disorder, causes them to be very fair-skinned and blonde. Oh. And as we said, there are many, many warnings about the golden-haired child being stolen away. And so with PKE, they're born, they look like a happy, healthy, bouncing bundle of joy. And they soon start to develop problems. They are, they start vomiting. They can't tolerate their food they're eating, so they're always hungry. And they eventually have mental delay, growth delay, and have like seizures, lots of other problems. But this is genetic? Yeah. So it makes sense for it to be clustered in one region. Right. And some other things, um, you know, tie in too for that clustering as well. You know, just different genetic syndromes, like things that are seen in more Catholic populations or Celtic populations are some of these disorders. And so this is something we don't see anymore really either. I mean, we see it, but we don't see the severe side of it because it can actually be treated with diet. And so just by identifying it immediately when they're born, we're able to raise happy, healthy children just by giving them a diet free of phenylalanine. And one other thing to fit in with the kind of genetic disorder uh, possibility is that males are more often changelings and males have a much higher rate of genetic disorder and congenital deformities compared to women or girls. I remember when I was preeclamptic and I had to have an early delivery with our first one, who was perfectly fine and healthy. I was talking to a nurse and she was like, he'll probably be fine. He may have to stay a little while in the NICU because white boys are so wimpy. That's true. That's a true <laughs> medical term. Wimpy white boy syndrome. It's a real thing. They really are. Okay, well, these all make sense. And we, we've talked about these being genetic and kind of centralized to specific regions. And I think it's really interesting that a very different population would have something similar to these, like the Igmongji and the Abiku. Right, and so, you know, these different Nigerian people, they could have similar problems. 
Right. You know, I mean, some of these be, things are cross-cultural. Yeah. And- but one thing that's very specific to their area of the world and their culture is sickle cell disease. Do you think that has any tie? Oh, yeah. A lot of people actually do. And so sickle cell disease is a genetic disorder that is seen in people of African descent from this part because it is a place where malaria is endemic. Okay. And so by having these sickle cell traits, one can have a protection against malaria. Now, go back to your pundit squares, Mendelian genetics. So you can be like homozygous where you have both traits. You get two. Think of it as two sickle cells. Okay. Or you can have a heterozygote where you have one. So you get it from one parent or you get it from both parents. So the people that get it from both parents have severe medical problems. Okay. It's too much. And it causes severe like blood clots, pain, and without, without early medical intervention, eventually death. Now, this is not death. Well, you can have death early on, but more like when they're a little older, like we see in this culture. Now, this trait still persists because the heterozygotes, the one that just have one from one parent, have a little bit of a beneficence from it, and they have a decreased risk of malaria. having a severe malarial infection. Interesting. I did not know about the malaria component. Right. That is where people think it was naturally selected for. Mm-hmm. And it gives you that benefit if you're a heterozygote. So kind of like you said earlier, you know, you would think that as medical knowledge and medical care spread in Nigeria, that the prevalence of this belief would retreat to your peripheral rural, uneducated communities, but that's not necessarily the case. Well, I think that's probably because when you look at the belief in the Obangji and the Abiku, it is considered a part of religious belief. It's not some fringy, paranormal, occult idea. It's very integrated into the religious philosophies prevalent in the area. And so while I think that the kind of undiagnosed medical explanation for changelings is probably heavily weighted in the cause of the growth of this tale. I think there are some other things that could be components to it. You mean not something wrong with the baby, but maybe something wrong with the environment? Or the mom. Or the mom. Name's a mother. Of course. You always do. Of course. So while you may have heard of like the baby blues or postpartum depression, which is a very common and real problem. Uh, Tom Cruise says it's not. Yeah, well, Tom Cruise can screw himself. Yeah, he does that. There is something called postpartum psychosis. And this is something that affects about one or two in every 1,000 women that give birth. And usually just a few weeks uh, after birth, and they start to be have psychotic symptoms. So this is, you said the one to two in every thousand? Yes, yeah, so like 0.1% to 0.2%. How common is postpartum depression? About 10%. Okay, so this is very, very rare then, comparatively. And so in it, by having psychotic symptoms, they start to have trouble differentiating between reality and not. You can have hallucinations of any of your senses, delusional ideas. And so 
as we've talked about before in the show, a delusion is a firmly held false belief that's completely different from what you would have previously believed. So in this case, you can have like persecutory delusions, like grandiose delusions. What makes a delusion different from a hallucination is the steadfastness, is the like full incorporation of that idea into their worldview. True. And a hallucination often has to do with the senses. Okay. And this is more of an ideation. An idea, yeah. And so they often have this just cognitive disorganization, which can sometimes lead to a mother's neglect of her infant. And this also happens very, very quickly. And they also have this overriding feature of perplexity, where everything's confusing. It's difficult to make sense of just your day-to-day events. Decisions, judgments, and actions can be very impaired. So there are many, many cases of postpartum psychosis, and they can involve ideas of changelings. Interesting. Of religious delusions. And in one Indian study, they tried to identify and kind of quantify the different kinds of delusions that people have. And so they did, of course, initially state that about a third of women have more than one delusion at a time. And so those delusions can include that someone will take the baby away. I can see that. I don't even know if that's a delusion. That someone will kill or harm the baby. That the baby is the devil or ill-fated. Like, what percentage of people thought that the baby was the devil? 36. Holy shit. (laughs) Okay. So it's not two. Well, this is of people with postpartum psychosis. But still, like, that's a very... Well, and just, I think this says something. About 12.5% thought the baby was God. They're the more optimistic set. But it's like a third of (laughs) the amount that people thought were the devil. I don't know how you could think your baby was not the devil, really. And you <laughs> During could, the third week after you bring it home. It's true. You can also ha- think that someone else's baby, or you can have others' weird, bizarre, uncommon delusions like that you hadn't delivered the baby, that it'll oh. be harmed if you breastfeed it because fumes are coming out of their breasts. Oh, okay. The baby is dead. A relative okay. who died before marriage is born again as my daughter. This doesn't seem like a delusion. I guess you're right. They, they quantified it as one. Someone has already killed my children. My unmarried sister is burying my child and my sister's child is inserted into my womb. It's a complex one. <laughs> okay, listen. So, got a lot of steps here. Do you have a notepad? Let me get a pen. Okay. My sister, she's not married, but she's pregnant. I don't know how that happens. Apparently, in some freak cases... It can. Anyway, she's having my baby. And this is her, like, out of wedlock, dirty baby that I've been saddled with. So if we could just get those switched, that'd be great. Thanks. I'm not crazy. I'm just paying attention. And so women with delusions like this can, are at more of a risk of harming their child, especially if they don't think it's theirs. Or the devil. Or the devil. But actually, it was said in the paper that if they have these kind of positive ideas, like that it's God, they will still like care for it better. Because they're tending to God. Of course. I thought all mothers thought their kids were God. I didn't. <laughs> an interesting note is that there is actually an Infanticide Act of 1938 in the United Kingdom, 
which states that in the first 12 months after a woman gives birth, a woman cannot be charged with the murder of her infant. She's charged with manslaughter. That's crazy pants to me. And that the, is crazy pants. Well, it's not. It's really not. If you can use psychiatric illness as a defense, this is a true psychiatric illness. But it I is don't not. see anything in there about... In the cases of mental illness, this is a broad blanket statement. You didn't let me finish. Oh, okay. The British law tactically acknowledges the existence of a condition called postpartum psychosis. Uh, the balance of the mother's mind was disturbed by reason of her not having fully recovered from the effect of giving birth. But not every mother who kills her child has postpartum psychosis. True. So you do have to prove it in court, just like you have to prove that someone did not know right from wrong. To be able to use an insanity plea. So interestingly enough, as I was considering the idea of postpartum psychosis and changelings, I came across some things that raised some little flags and also made me think about how these behaviors might have been perceived in the way back. All right, you got to look through it through that lens. It's Victorian monocle. Oh, yes, very good. Hysteria. They all have hysteria, you see, old boy. Definitely. That evil uterus. So in one example, Miss A said to her husband that she thought he was poisoning her and the baby was starting to stare at her strangely. She kept saying that she smelled horses and heard them galloping outside her bedroom. She could not fall asleep even when their mother came to the house to care for their newborn. Which, if you can't sleep then... It's your only chance. It's your only chance. At home, Miss A was able to sleep only two to three hours nightly. Her husband noticed that she would gaze out the windows of their apartment for hours without explanation. She had not bathed in six days. She required much help and simple tasks, such as diapering the baby. She expressed guilt about being a terrible mother and felt she did not deserve to have her family. She told her husband that she heard voices commanding her to go with the infant son to the subway and jump in front of the train. And so that's a great example showing all the different facets that postpartum psychosis can present as. You know, these hallucinations, you know, these delusions, you can have command auditory hallucinations, just hear these odd, weird things, have this perplexity about simple tasks like changing a diaper, or even just that disheveled disorganization that's very common with psychotic patients. Is insomnia common? Either are. Extremes okay. of sleep are common with most psychiatric, lots of psychiatric problems like depression, which also mood components of this disorder are very common. Another woman said, maybe I wasn't so into the baby. They brought in the baby and I was barely looking at it. Or I was acting like it's a rag doll or something. You know, just like sitting there. And so these disorders can really create this lack of bonding between the mother and the baby and even feeling like it's not even their own baby. So in another case in 1986, this one's a little different. This is Kathleen Householder. She told the Winchester, Virginia police that Lindsay, her daughter, was abducted from an unlocked pickup truck in a parking lot. And she went on to say that she left the infant in the truck she went in the store to cash a check, which always good move. Leave your infants everywhere, anywhere, everywhere, dung heaps, pickup trucks, whatever. Just for God's sake, don't watch them attentively. Not recommended. Okay. Oh, really? So then she goes on TV 
and makes an appeal with the kidnappers. Please, please, oh please, won't you please return my baby, you mean old kidnappers. And then she changed her story after taking a... Lie detector test. Lie detector test. She told the police officers that the baby died in an accident in her home. And she said she threw the body into the Shenandoah River. So the West Virginia State Police and game wardens found Lindsay's body on January 21st. After the body was found, she told police that she'd placed the baby in a plastic bag and put the body into the pickup with her two-year-old son, Dustin. However, an autopsy report showed that the baby died from a blow to the head, causing brain swelling and suffocation. And she'd hit the girl in the head with a rock. And so it's an extreme case, and she did end up pleading postpartum psychosis. And if you go and look into this, there are numerous cases of women murdering their children related to postpartum psychosis. It's a disturbing trend, and something that, if you do notice, the cases are always in the 70s and the 80s, and because we started screening for this, and it's, mm-hmm. it's become more well-known to where doctors are looking for postpartum depression and postpartum psychosis, and they're not just going like, it's the baby blues, you'll be fine, go smoke a cigarette and have a Guinness. That would make me feel better. It probably would help just like a tiny bit, but it would not fix the problem. And that one, like I said, is a little different. She's not actually thinking that her baby is a foreign body, but she's kind of acting out some of the behaviors that we see in this sort of rejection that the mothers in the changeling stories did. She's claiming kidnapping. So I thought this article was pretty interesting, and I think it's a pretty good fit. It was published in the Sydney Morning Herald on November 27th of 2016. It looked just like her baby, and yet the mother became convinced her daughter had been replaced. The six-week-old child in her arms was not her own, but something else. The 26-year-old had just arrived from Senegal the year before with her elder daughter joining her husband in Walsand, Newcastle, after years spent apart. The mother who cannot be named for legal reasons, so we're going somewhere good here, suffered no mental illness during pregnancy or in the weeks after the birth, a court found. The father noticed nothing wrong until two days before the event, when his wife told him she was unhappy in her heart but did not want to see a doctor. The father sought out antidepressants the next day and gave her some and found her much happier. Placebo effect. Mm Mm-hmm. That evening, she discussed the baby's upcoming naming ceremony on the phone with friends, who also found her very happy. The next day, after reporting feeling ill, she slit the child's throat. The father came home to find his wife and the baby lying on a blood-soaked mattress. The mother was still there when police arrived. Get up! You're under arrest for murdering your baby, a senior constable said, twice. But she did not respond. Charged with murder, she pleaded not guilty her lawyers arguing a defense of mental illness. She told a forensic psychiatrist that weird voices called her, and she came to believe that the child was not my baby, something else I was holding and had to deal with. It was quite scary, more like a devil thing I was holding. And so this is an obvious case of postpartum psychosis that this patient had, but within it is something interesting called a capgrass delusion. This particular article states only a handful of instances have been reported in what they can find in the case archives, 
And in one, a woman thought an imposter had received plastic surgery so they could appear as her mother, whom she stabbed to death. In another, a mother killed her son, thinking that his soul had been sucked out to leave a changeling behind. Very interesting, because this really does fit very well with the idea of changelings. So Capgrass, which is actually probably Capgras, because he's a French guy, but I was taught Capgrass, was originally described by Joseph Capgrass. In 1923, in a case of a French woman, Madame M., who complained that corresponding doubles had taken the place of her husband and other people she knew. First called it l'illusion de soisée, meaning the illusion of lookalikes. The affected individuals believe that another person, usually a family member or close acquaintance, has been replaced by a lookalike imposter. So this delusion becomes a fixed false belief, and it is a component of other psychiatric disorders. So it could be a component of any kind of psychosis, whether it be postpartum psychosis, whether it be schizophrenia, whether it be Alzheimer's disease. It's seen in lots of different cases. And is this a type of paranoia? It could be related to it, but it in its, of itself is technically a delusion. So one case of a capgrass delusion is in a woman named in the case study Mary. She's 40 years old and has a nine-year-old daughter, Sarah, who had recently been placed in the custody of Child Protective Services, and she felt that they had replaced her with an imposter. She also reported that she'd given birth to twins, that the hospital record only documented the birth of Sarah, her daughter. On occasion, she'd shown up to her daughter's school refusing to pick her up, screaming, Give me my real daughter. I know what you've done. She related several episodes where the daughter was whisked away before I could talk to her while going about her daily business. Like she would see someone driving by in a car and in the passenger seat was her daughter. And before she could do anything, it would drive away. So eventually, with all these significant delusions, the daughter was taken away. And when asked about it, she said, I love my mother, except for when she doesn't believe I'm me. Even in supervised visitation the mother would not acknowledge her daughter saying it was not the true sarah that sounds like an episode of the twilight zone it really does like from the daughter's perspective it would be so good or from anyone's perspective even i mean it could be anything it could just be like they look like them but i don't think they are it's, i mean that's the premise for body snatchers right like invasion of the body snatchers no you're right but I've never seen it told from the person who's like, I swear to God, I'm me. I think I'm me. Holy shit, what if I'm not me? Oh, good idea. Let's do it. No, that's absolutely horrifying is the point I'm making. I cannot imagine being on either side of that. And I, and imagining that visitation where the kid's like, hi, mom, I love you. And the mom's like, you're not really Sarah. Get out of here. Can you imagine anything more hurtful or demoralizing to hear? Right. I love my mother, except when she doesn't believe I'm me. Like, oh. Ah. So she sounds like she has a little bit of paranoia, too, like with the whole, like, I had twins, they took one away. Every time I get close, they take her away. Well, this is psychotic ideas. Yeah, paranoia is very common. So it's more than just that, then. It's got a different kind of neurological basis, or what do they think is happening when this happens? I mean, it's happened more than once, apparently. Right, this is a common in regard to delusions go seen but it's often seen with dementia patients but it is seen in other cases as oh, well right i can think of several instances where i've heard of people with dementia being like get out of here you're not my son my son's exactly what I, yeah and so 
there is a kind of bio neurological idea where they think that capgrass is similar to prosopagnosia. That's what Chuck Close and like Oliver Sacks have. It's where you can't recognize faces. Right. So this could be related to a damage in the right ventromedial occipitotemporal area in the brain. And all that matters with that is that that's the part of your brain that recognizes faces. Okay, so let's call it the face recognizing part of your brain instead of whatever you just said. Face area. Face area. Now I'm picturing like the Nick Jr. face on your brain. That's exactly what it is. Okay, good. And if you look at it from a psychodynamic approach, they can't have an ambivalence and hostility towards the imposter, either directly or indirectly as cause of the delusion. So this severe anger you have towards the imposter, you're not them, get away, can lead to the use of kind of splitting as a defense mechanism. So you can be angry at this person that you're supposed to love, like your daughter, and you can still retain that that love idea that you're supposed to have and split them off into this imposter and project your anger onto that imposter. That's very Victorian. Well, it is because you're preserving that innocence. You're like, oh, I have to kill it in order to keep it because my other emotions are conflicting with my ideal. Right, but the idea of kind of splitting these things off as a defense mechanism is, is very much still present in modern psychology i meant like just in terms of themes yes that is still prevalent in psychology i see what you're saying so that is more of a a psychodynamic that is more of a conceptual understanding and then you're saying there might also be a true like mechanism in the brain that's not working right right like if you have damage to that area the face area of the brain then it will lead to this like a stroke affecting that one area is the woman in Newcastle who actually harmed her child, is she the outlier here or is this common with Capgrass? Well, she is the outlier as in someone that would actually kill their child. But having violence towards someone related to delusions and psychological problems is definitely high. Okay. Now, Ellis and Young had an interesting hypothesis about this delusion, saying that we may have a mirror image or double dissociation of prosopagnosia. So that's that our conscious ability to recognize faces is still there. Right, because we know that the child looks like Sarah. Right. But we have a damage to the system that produces our emotional response to this face. Well, you're like, that's Sarah, and you open the Sarah file, and everything inside that file, as far as emotions go, is wiped. Right, it's wrong. There's something not right about it. You're not connecting it correctly. Like it's written in a different language. Yeah, the wires are crossed. Interesting. That's so interesting. That's why we get that idea of, like, they're not quite right. They still look like them. We still recognize the face. So it's not a true prosopagnosia. So there may be a disconnection with the limbic system, that area of our brain that is the seat of our emotions. So with this theory, we represent people in these two components. There's that physical aspect, which you look like. I know what you look like. Mm-hmm. And then there's what we associate with that idea of you. Look at you. I have certain feelings. So in the same way that when you see something scary, you call up fear, emotions. You think of your child and you call up love, emotions. Right. And then this is just 
cross-wired and we don't get that appropriate emotional response to the face of our child. Right, but then you'd still have it that long-term memory of what it's supposed to feel like to contrast it against. And I imagine that's where that dissonance comes in. Yeah, that's where you get that split. It's very interesting. And I think very appropriate in the context of changelings. Like as we talked about with the kids with medical issues, you know, you're able to split that off that I'm supposed to love this person, but also like I have a lot of problems that my child is different. There's something wrong to quote with them. And that causes that problem. That causes that psychological dissonance. And you might even be seeing a more elementary version something that's not actually rooted in the neurological process, but that kind of double dissociation might apply even if you're comparing your wished-for child with a child you actually have. That same feeling of disconnect might exist between those two images in your mind. No, exactly. You have that love for your the idea of a child, that love you're supposed to have. Then you have your anger and your resentment and your guilt and your grief and you don't want to put that on your child. There's another way out, you know. What's that? I have a story. Really? I do. So this comes to us from a fantastic lady named Nancy Shepard Hughes, who went down to the shanty towns of northeastern Brazil to a town called Alto Cruzeiro in Timbaba. And she went down with the Peace Corps in 1964 to educate midwives and vaccinate children. However... She returned in 1982 with a notebook to do field work, and she wanted to examine the phenomena of mother-infant bonding, which seemed very unusual to her. And at the time of writing, and this account was published in a book in 1993, the life expectancy was 40 years old in this area. Wow, that's so young. I know. So yearly, more than a million children under the age of five were dying in Brazil. And in this area in particular, there were a lot of single mothers. If they were lucky, sometimes older women from the community would take in children to foster in sort of an unofficial capacity. But that was not very common because people were not living very long. Men were usually off working like long-term jobs, kind of like long-haul jobs, or just gone. And they would run men off who were sorry. They were not allowed to stay around. But the women would also work. They were not just staying at home waiting for checks to come in from husbands, etc. And they either did like domestic labor, like being maids, etc. for wealthier women, or scab labor, such as clearing and weeding. And as you might guess, can't take your baby to work with you. Yes, this was an environment that was not conducive to babies, not conducive to family. I mean, you couldn't, it's hard to raise a family, poor family unit. And then also poor health for the kids. Absolutely. So initially they were permitted kind of a temporary residence there, but then they just sort of stayed in these very temporary houses that were like lean-tos and kind of thrown together little shanties. Like, you remember when we were children and we were unfairly pressured by those commercials where it's like, for just $1 a day, you Still could exist. help. Oh, but it, it was just on Nick every other commercial break. And then your mom would be like, eat your vegetables, there are starving children in Africa. And I'd be like, I know, his name is Elmer, I have his photo. It looked like that, commercial. They were lacking water, electricity, and sanitation. There was food scarcity. The average caloric intake in this area was the same as Buchenwald inmates. 
Oh, wow. So, I mean, nothing. Nothing. Um, they were epidemics. And during the 80s, when she was doing her field work, living conditions kind of appeared modern. But she says that death, hunger, and sickness in this area are a result of a history characterized by feudalism, historic exploitation, and institutionalized dependency. And she wondered if mother love is the cultural expression of what many attachment theorists believe to be bioevolutionary script. What could the script mean to women living in these conditions? Yeah, so, I mean, kind of the script we've talked about, that, like, you love your child, you do anything for them, that maternal love. So what did they do different? What was different in this really rough society? Well, she noticed that there was an unusual cultural attitude toward infant death. And she explains that while nursing a child back to health was possible and relatively easy to accomplish, convincing a mother to put forth that effort to save her child once she had determined that they were ill-fated was nearly impossible. Why was that? Because mothers were taught to believe that they could discern which children had a will to live or a knack for life and which were born wanting to die. Makes me think of the Ubanji. And she says that mothers didn't breastfeed. Because they had work or they just didn't have the calories. And so there was also like that lack of bonding. Once they determined that children were ill-fated, they would allow them to proceed down the natural course to death. And she said that this can be thought of as passive infanticide or mortal selective neglect. Wow. Harsh words, but accurate. She says scarcity made mother love a fragile emotion, postponed until the newborn displayed a will to live, a taste, gusto, or a knack, gieto, for life. A high expectancy of death prepared mothers to let go and hasten the death of babies that were failing to thrive by reducing the already insufficient food, water, and care. Angel babies of the Alto were neither of this earth nor fully spirits. In appearance, they were ghost-like, pale, and wispy-haired their arms and limbs stripped of flesh, their bellies grossly distended, their eyes blank and staring, their faces wizened, a cross between a startled primate and a wise old sorcerer. Well, that fits so well with the description, because she's probably describing kids that are very severely malnourished. I was thinking as you were talking mm-hmm. about the old, you know, the old description, I wonder if all those things could just be signs of malnutrition. Well, it could be. And, you know, there is some writing about you know, changeling lore, and that if they were kids that had either severe medical disorders. Like congenital issues. Yeah, then they would be pulling resources from a very large, very poor family. And that it wasn't in that time possible or like even terribly to say like worth it to put effort into the kid when they had five other kids to feed along with themselves and there just wasn't enough food to go around and it's hard to think of it in that way now it's hard to be economic about children right it's hard to even like i cannot even wrap my head around it but just to give you an idea of how entrenched this sort of separation from grief was in this area she describes a birthday party for a four-year-old girl that she attended where a cake decorated with candles was placed on a table next to a tiny blue cardboard coffin that held her nine-year-old sibling who had died the night before oh wow that's disturbing it's like life and death and celebration and she said the brazilian happy birthday is congratulations to you you made it. And then she's like, all I could think is like, yep, congratulations. You actually made it another year. And then she tells a story of a boy named Zeno. 
And she says that he and his mother, Lourdes, who she met when she was doing her Peace Corps work, were very interesting. Lourdes believed that 13-year-old Z was doomed and focused her maternal efforts on her newborn, who seemed healthier, leaving Z to be malnourished, wasting away on a urine and feces-soaked piece of cardboard, which served as his bed. Shepard Hughes intervened, force-feeding the toddler and carting him to and from the communal child watch facility. Locals chided her for her efforts, explaining that it was a waste of time and reiterating that Z stood zero chance of survival. Despite the wisdom of the locals, Z began to show signs of improvement, at which time Shepard Hughes returned him to his mother. She reconnected with the family in 1982 to find that Z had survived and that he enjoyed a positive relationship with Lourdes. He seemed to interpret the fact that his mother gave up on him as an honest mistake that anyone could have made, not a reason for resentment or hostility toward her. Shepard Hughes implied that this was just one example of how normalized the practice of mortal selective neglect was in the Alto. Wow, it's such a part of that culture. And she goes on to talk about the character of the kids that were sort of prized in the Alto. She says, the mothers cried the hardest for the children who had almost died, but who surprised everyone by surviving against the odds. Wiping away a stray tear from her eye, an alto mother would speak of a deep emotion of the child who had been given up for dead and suddenly beat death back, displaying a fierce desire for life. These tough and stubborn children were loved above all others. Also, how common was this at the time? So at the time when the book was written, is called Death Without Weeping. The average woman experienced 9.5 pregnancies and 3.5 child deaths and 1.5 stillbirths. Wow, just related to the environment that they were having children in. Right, and there was a high level of fertility too in a very Catholic country. So 75% of deaths occurred before children were six months old. 82% occurred before children one year old. And 45% of all deaths in Alto, all of them, were children under five. So they would take any child that showed any kind of sickness or weakness or or other problems and just set them aside? Well, if they were perceived as having child sickness, they were set aside. Now, there are two different types of child sickness, chronic and acute. Chronic sickness is a baby who was born looking sickly and showed little resistance to common ailments, and they were very quickly set aside. But a sudden attack, or an acute attack, was a child who looked healthy, and then suddenly began convulsing and died, which she suggested might be a presentation of extreme malnutrition, dehydration, or encephalitis. Yeah, or so many other things. Yes, so they were told to put them aside and allow them to die quietly. And this is also because children who had these symptoms were associated with epilepsy, madness, or being rabid, which are all very stigmatized. Rabid. Mm-hmm. Midwives would instruct mothers whose children had child sickness not to wash them or give them remedies. Just wait for its death. And this type of neglect was not seen as sinful or wrong. It's just like cooperating. Again, just like in all the other cultures we've talked about, it's culturally accepted. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because there's like a, a almost a taboo at this time about talking about it in a judgmental way. So, like, even if there was a child who people were like, that baby was fine, and they all gossiped about it, they would never, like, accuse the mom of doing anything wrong. So, interestingly, she also says that there's very little ceremony when an infant dies. Children lead a little procession to a grave which will not be marked, and no one visits the graves. I imagine there was 
such a lack of health care for the infants, of course, but also the mothers as well, just a general lack. Well, you have to think they grew up this way. They're the tough ones. They're the survivors who beat everybody else out if they're still alive to have children. Right. So they kind of have this attitude of, I did it, you can do it. And it represents a very strong survival strategy. As I said, there's a really high infant mortality rate and a really high fertility rate. So using basic logic, you can see, play in the numbers game, not all of your children are going to survive. So this is a very pragmatic approach to that problem. And so it allows mothers to invest themselves more fully in children who are more likely to survive. And with that in mind, it's interesting to note that mothers whose children develop child sickness refer to them as little critters who have no feelings. Yeah, so they delay any kind of bonding with the infant. Well, and in that, if your child is actually folk diagnosed with child sickness, it's not even bonding, it's dehumanizing. They're critters. You know, they're something less than human. No, true. Children who die young after their death, though, are referred to as angels. And weeping for angels is considered a sign of madness. Because they've gone on to a better place? Yes. What are you sad about? Yes. Oh, wow. And so... Again, madness is very stigmatized in that society, so it's understood that you're not going to be crying in public, especially. And of course, Catholicism, being so predominant in this area, does play a part. They do not hold church services for infants, so under 12 months that die. Really? Why not? Because they thought that the pageantry was glamorizing. So they didn't want to encourage? They're not encouraging, yes. Oh, wow. And for the same reason... They don't baptize dying babies. They only offer extreme unction. Oh, wow. I can't believe. Which is, if you're Catholic. Not right. (laughs) And scary, right? Yeah, does not fit. (laughs) And of course, another influence of the Catholic Church, birth control, sterilization, and abortion, all forbidden. So how do you control this? So this was published in 1993. That's a day or two ago. Doesn't seem like it, but it was. I mean, is this still going on? Well, I have another story. So let's go back to Nancy. A couple of things you need to know. There's a clandestine extermination group that began to operate in the 80s called the Limpeza, or street cleaning. And they targeted dirty street children and single black men in areas like Alto. And in 2001, the leader was identified as Goncalves Quierzo. And the group was that he headed was known as the Guardian Angels. No, not Guardian Angels yeah, again. I know. And they were responsible for killing more than 100 victims. And they had infiltrated the police and the government. But they were now awaiting trial. So now that these guys were out of the way, all the poor people who'd been hiding from them sort of poured into the public areas among the gente fina, or the cultivated people. Their new visibility betrayed the illusion of Brazilian modernity and evoked contradictory emotions of fear, aversion, pity, and anger. So they're now in the public eye. People now saw the, I mean... Of course, this has been talked about in anthropology classes in the United States for 20 years, but now people saw it in their front yard. Right. So Nancy's called in. Can you go back to the Alto and figure out what's going on? We need your help. We need somebody to kind of sort some things out, and we've got to get these guys put away, so we need to know about all the homicides. And Nancy, your death squad doesn't scare me. I teach at UC Berkeley. Shepard Hughes goes back down to Brazil. That's a hell of a nickname. I gave it to her. 
So she was charged with trying to assemble a list of suspicious homicides that might be linked to the angels. And she was trying to be covert about it as the men from the death squad were still at large. She's tough as nails. She's badass. So she inquired about child and infant deaths as a cover to get a chance to look at all the records. But as she was looking through there, she says, finally, I admitted that I was looking into youth homicide. The manager nodded her head. Yes, it's sad, but she asked with a shy smile, haven't you noticed the changes in the infant and child deaths? Once I began to scan the record books, I was wearing a smile too. So what happened? Well, let's just look at the numbers first. So in 1977, infant mortality was at 409 per 1,000. And in 1978, it was at 357 per 1,000. However, in 2001, it was 35 per 1,000. And in 2009, it was 25.2 per 1,000. Wow, that's an amazing improvement. What changed in Brazil? Well, democracy... That helps sometimes. Yes. One thing she mentions is pregnancy classes and then a government-run clinic, which is a vast improvement from the privately owned one that was there before, which was owned by the mayor's brother and sometimes had space to help people who needed it. So they actually had some access to health care. Yes. The women I spoke with, some first-time mothers, others expecting their second or third child, were confident in their ability to give birth to a healthy baby. No one I spoke to expected to have, except by accident, more than two children. A pair. That was the goal. Today, young women of the Alto can expect to give birth to three or fewer infants and see all of them live to at least adolescence. So in Tumbaba specifically, 200 annual infant deaths were reported in the 1980s. And there were 50 in 2001. The causes of death were specific. In the past, causes had been stated in vague terms. Undetermined, heart stopping, respiration stopped, malnutrition, or the mythopoetic diagnosis of acute infantile suffering. That sounds tragic. So in 2007, she says that she saw happy babies and toddlers who are plump and jolly, with high status in the family hierarchy, who brought honor to their household. She noticed manufactured cribs with pristine sheets and fluffy blankets, disposable diapers, plastic rattles, and powdered milk, the number one baby killer of the past, was almost a banned substance. In contrast, no one literally breastfed during my early years of research in the Alto. It was breast milk that was banned, banned by the owners of the sugar plantations and the bourgeois patois, mistresses of the house, for whom the women of the Alto washed clothes and cleaned and cooked and served meals. Today, those jobs no longer exist. The sugar mills and the sugar estates have closed down, and the landowning class has long since moved, leaving behind a population of working-class poor, a thin middle class with washing machines rather than maids, and a displaced rural labor force that is largely sustained by the largesse of the New Deal-style federal assistance. So in Brazil, there's actually a really huge push for breastfeeding because of some of these problems. And so they actually have a much better system of breast milk banks and ways to share breast milk if you're having problems with producing enough for your infants. And they're way ahead of the United States and this system. Well, in addition to that system, there are also direct cash transfers for poor unemployed families. Grants are given to women, mothers, school children, and youths. But there are conditions. 
for example, for a family grant for a mom and up to five kids, it requires the mother to immunize her babies, attend to their medical needs, follow medical directions, keep children in school, monitor their homework, help them prepare for exams, and purchase school books, pens, and pencils, and school clothes. So interestingly, (laughs) you may not know this, these are a lot of similar changes that occurred in the South in the early 1900s that took it out of the terrible squalor that it was in. Say the Rockefeller Institute actually came through and developed, like had indoor plumbing and made sure they had sanitation. Um, Different welfare programs were started. School lunch programs were started based on the terrible condition that recruits had during World War II. They found out that there were so many emaciated people in the United States and malnourished. And that's where we get school lunch programs from. And it kind of is a push by the populace and by the government to improve the general health care of their citizens. So the same thing is happening in Brazil. They, too, have new school lunch programs and offer fortified milkshakes with protein. Um, There are also milk distribution programs that I think are really interesting. They're run by women who have a little extra room in their home, and they just kind of set up shop handing out milk, which is is a lovely image, the old lady like handing out milk from her house. There are also food pantries, uh, stipends for single moms who keep their kids in school. Now there are 120 community health agents in Timbaba, which is amazing. They were like, they had to hide in the old regime. They were seen as subversive and they must pass rigorous exams and they assist with birth and postnatal care. There's still no easy access to a hospital from that area. The hospital's like 65 miles away. And as a result, a lot of women do have C-sections that are scheduled before their due date in order to ensure that they can actually be in the hospital. And she says that's still an ongoing problem. So one thing that she says has contributed to having fewer, healthier babies is voluntary rapid lowering of the fertility rate. And she says that in the last decade alone, it's decreased from 2.36 to 1.9. That's a huge drop. It really is. And one way this is being accomplished is by sterilization. And she says that's always been preferable to birth control or IUDs in Brazil. And she says until recently, this was a privilege of the upper middle classes and the wealthy. Today, tubal ligations are openly discussed and arranged. One woman I interviewed, a devout Catholic, gushed that God was good, so good that he had given her a third son, her treasure trove, and at the same time allowed her the liberty and the freedom for a tubal ligation. Praise God, she said. Amen, I said. (laughs) And so as a result, four of the 30 women that she interviewed had lost infants, and one had lost a two-year-old who drowned. But she says, today, the mothers did not describe the deaths in a monotone or dismiss them as inevitable or an act of mercy that relieved their suffering. Rather, they recalled with deep sadness the date, the time, and the cause of their baby's death and remembered them by name, saying that Gloria would have been 10 today or that Marcos would be eight years old had he or she lived. So throughout talking about all of these different stories of changelings and Ubanji, we see that people had to develop this mythology, develop this folklore, because there were serious problems and concerns 
and issues that could come up with children. And they had to have some way of dealing with it. Somewhere to put that anger and guilt and sadness. Right. I think that we are inclined as a species or as a a living organism, really, to see future generations as hope. We pin our hopes on our kids. And I think that there are situations created by environment and external factors and sometimes even freak medical conditions or just lack of knowledge that take that away and make us feel hopeless. But in Brazil, we get a glimmer of hope. I think that we are allowed to see that the second that we are allowed to love our kids and the second that we are allowed to invest in our children, we do. We find a way toward the future with them. And for them, we make necessary sacrifices no matter what they are. And I'm just thankful that we're at a place now where it doesn't have to look like a horror story. And with not having to have this anger and fear that we have to project onto some supernatural being, we can accept this hope. Accept the hope that a new generation brings to our lives and to our community. And I think we can dare to find it in unlikely places. We can accept the child that has a difficult medical condition because we have hope. We have hope that they'll be okay, that we'll get the right care, that they will have a full life in a way that we couldn't have in past generations. And we don't have to mourn for the wished for child. No, I think the wished for child may be just a story. Yeah, that's just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.